we've been preaching through a series, I've been preaching through a series, um, entitled The Drama of Grace. And we've been looking at this drama in which as God allows our life to play out, we encounter obstacles, trials, struggles, even sin issues, in which as God allows us to go through these times, God has a specific purpose for them. And it's almost as if we were on a stage called the earth in which God plays out this drama of his grace in which as we are pressed against the wall, as we come to this place of complete desperation and reliance upon God, he pours out his grace. He gives grace to the humble. That's right. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in those trials, God then pours out his grace as we are humbled and desperately indeed. Now, grace, you remember me saying this, is everything that God has that we do not but desperately need. And I'm wording it this way because God's grace can sometimes be viewed as a power, just depending on your situation, a provision. It's not just grace for salvation. It's not just forgiveness of your sins, though it includes these. So we need to see grace as something that we encounter even before we come to Christ. God's grace, we encounter God's grace, and that grace leads us to this place of repentance. But throughout our life, as Christians, we desperately need his grace. Everything that he has that we don't, but desperately need. And there's just something about this spirit of desperation that God likes because it is that is what really strikes at the heart of what faith is. Now, I can remember, I'm going to I'm going to back up now to as I transition into what we're I'm going to be preaching on this morning. But I can remember years and years ago, I grew up, and, and I guess it was sometime during my junior high year that my dad decided to put a garden in my baseball field. That, that would be my backyard. That was our wiffle ball baseball field. We did pitching, catching. We played home run derby with our wiffle ball. And I, I could put a mean curve on a wiffle ball. I tell you what, you'd be lucky to hit it. I became very proficient. But my dad decided to make apparently good use of our backyard other than home run derby. And he put this garden, it was like 35 feet by 15 feet, something about that big. And it took up a third or more of our backyard. But he planted like everything back there. And I can remember one particular vegetable. And, and don't get me wrong, I enjoyed planting the seeds and watering it and watching it grow. I just thought that was the coolest thing, how this process of putting a seed in the ground would eventually grow something. And, and one particular vegetable that I just, I got a chuckle out of was zucchini. Now, the reason why I got a chuckle out of zucchini is because you're used to seeing the zucchinis that they sell in the stores, and they're real tiny. They're about this big, right? Well, for us, that was, are you serious? They can grow so much larger. Trust me, they can. I, we, I remember when we would go on vacation for like two weeks, and we would come back, and the zucchinis would be about this big, okay? They would be like small baseball bats, but a whole lot heavier. Seriously, about this big. And my mom would, hey, we're not throwing that out. Uh-uh. She would cut it in half. She would scoop out the seeds, because the seeds by that time would be a little bit too hard. And she would just make this filling with sausage in it 
and then bake it, and it was like, this is amazing. Uh, but I, I love that. Uh, so they would just grow super, super, you know, huge, right? And then I also decided, you know what? My dad's doing this garden thing, and maybe I'll try my own. So I actually built a planter on top of our roof. Now, our garage roof, not our normal roof, right? A normal roof is peaked. So garage roof was flat, and I built this little planter, filled it with soil, and I grew watermelon. And I just thought, what, how cool would that be? Now, please understand, I'm from the north. Can I just think, you, you do not grow watermelons in the north for a really good reason. And so, but I tried, and, and they germinated. They started growing, and they, would, they were vines, so they would grow outside of the planter, and I got some watermelons. Now, these were really cool watermelons because they were seedless watermelons, but they only grew about this big. And inside, they were yellow. I just thought that was so cool. I had to try and grow one. And if not just, to, I just wanted one to cut it in half and see the yellow inside. And it, I enjoyed it, but they were, they were only about the size of a cantaloupe, right? And so you could just, if you plant the seeds, you could grow some things that were really small, some things that were really big. But I enjoyed watching this process of sowing and then reaping. And I want to talk to you this morning about this idea of sowing and reaping. And when I come to the application point, um, I, I, I need to let you know that this principle that I'm going to share with you, that we're going to find in Galatians chapter 6, so you can turn there. But in Galatians chapter 6, we're going to discover a principle, a way to apply this principle of sowing and reaping that, can I just tell you, most Christians don't, don't know how to do it. Most Christians fail in this. Most Christians swing to uh, either extreme that I'll talk about, and we don't know how, many times, we don't know how to walk this out. And especially between husband and wife, we don't know how to do it, and it creates so many problems. But if we do it right, I want to tell you this, it, you're going to see how this fits into this concept of the drama of grace, and then what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to put a diagram on the board up here, just in way of review. Now, I'm going to draw a heart. Oh, I like that. It's actually symmetrical, at least for the most part. This is me, or it's you. That, that represents what's going on in your heart, in your life. Now, we learned from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that for every Christian that encounters the gospel and embraces a relationship with Jesus Christ, that God does something. He puts his truth, and very specifically, he focuses on the gospel, but it is truth in general. And when we believe, he puts the Holy Spirit in us. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So I'm going to put in here, and the Spirit. This is what Paul calls treasure in jars of clay. It's not just the gospel, it's not just truth, but it's with the spirit, because as they interact with each other, if you will, they bring transformation. And we read about that in the very last verse of chapter three, that we are transformed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. So what God is doing in your life, he is actually producing a glory. 
it is in similar fashion, it is similar to the glory of Christ as he reflects the perfect image of God the Father. He said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is trying to reproduce that very character of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. You remember those fruits of the Spirit. He's trying to reproduce those in us. That is the treasure. It is the gospel or truth itself with the Spirit. The Spirit is what's doing this with the truth, stirring it up in us. But remember I used an analogy, and that analogy was ingredients like in a cake. And if you leave out some of the ingredients, you just it just doesn't make a cake. And so there are certain ingredients, if you will. Obviously, there's you and I, but in us as Christians, there's truth or the gospel, the spirit. But there's also what he calls light and momentary troubles. And I'm just going to put up here troubles. Light and momentary troubles. They produce something in us. That's what Paul tells us. These light and momentary troubles, they produce something in us. And I'm going to tell you that they are absolutely necessary, even as heat is necessary to bake your cake, troubles are necessary. You cannot grow apart from troubles. Now, that's going to be different in heaven. We won't need the troubles, but here on earth, church, we learn to embrace them. We don't pray for them. God, give me more troubles today. That's not what God is asking us to do. He'll take care of that end. You take care of this end. Because for us, the challenge is to respond in faith. And what did I say faith is? Faith is that concept of desperation, longing this intimacy with the Father, even in the midst of every trial, no matter how hard, every crisis, no matter how severe and heartbreaking that crisis is. God allows them for a purpose. And in all of these ingredients, they are mixed together, if you will, and it produces this glory in us. Now, I want to bring you to one last thing, and this is where we're going to kind of launch off over the next half hour or so into what I want to teach on in Galatians chapter 6. If you remember... I started off the, the message last week talking about the judgment seat of Christ. That happens at the very end of, uh, excuse me, right in the middle, verse 10 of chapter 5. It's, it's at the end of what he is talking about concerning these jars of clay and the light and momentary troubles producing in us an eternal weight of glory. That is the very same glory that he talked about that's Inside of us, this drama of grace with the troubles and faith and God pouring his grace in and, and so on. But on that, in the judgment seat of Christ, what is it that the Christian, the Christian, not the lost sinner, not the unbeliever, but the Christian, what is it that God looks at or Christ looks at and weighs? And by weighing, the word is judgment, but judgment is just simply a decision. Too many times I think we associate judgment with punishment. And that's not what's going on in that verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He is not talking about punishment. That is not what he means, Paul means, by this word judgment. 
It just simply, krino in Greek simply means to render a decision. And this decision are rewards. The Christian does not receive punishments. There is no purgatory after judgment. There is not for the Christian. There is either heaven or hell. And for those who embrace Christ and our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we go to heaven, but we receive rewards based on what? Do you remember what it said there in 2 Corinthians 5.10? Based on the good or the bad. Now, how the bad works in there, there's a lot of ideas and theories, and it, 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 is, it does not end up in punishment. That would be a mistake. There's no scripture that supports that when the Christian has sinned, he gets punished after he dies. That, that, that's groundless. If anything, maybe it subtracts from the rewards. Again, we don't know. But all of our life is then weighed, the good, the bad. And here's what God's goal then is. Here's my point. That in all of this that he is doing in us, what these troubles, us responding in faith, produce is going to be found in this right here. It's going to be found in do very simply, doing good. I know that's not profound. I know that's, you kind of expected that. But God is, th th this is the end goal. The end goal is not for you to be saved. That's great. But Jesus didn't come to simply forgive you of your sins. He does, but see, he has a goal. Just like you don't go to work simply to make money that sits in your bank account while your family starves to death, right? How silly. You, you work, you get money, yes, but the money's there for a reason. It's there to purchase so that you have provision for the needs of your family, right? So my sins are forgiven, but that's not my end game. That's not God's end game. His end game, his goal is to produce something in us specifically good deeds, doing good. That is what, at the end of the age, Jesus judges or weighs us or rewards us accordingly. Okay? Now, Galatians chapter 6 has quite a bit to talk about this. And before I get there, I want to bring one more scripture verse to bear on this issue. We find that in Luke chapter 10. You can write this down, verse 27. Luke 10, 27. An expert in the law, sometimes called a lawyer, comes to Jesus, and it says that he wants to test Jesus. He asks Jesus a question. What do I need to do to gain eternal life? Now, our Christian responses, we're expecting Jesus to say, well, just believe in me but he doesn't word it that way. Actually, this is what Jesus many times did when he perceived something that wasn't right in the heart of someone who was coming to him. That didn't happen. All The rich young ruler had a good heart, but this man did not because he came to test Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He, he answers the man's question with a question. He says, so what do you think? What does the law tell you? And so the man says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, I remember preaching on this passage some years ago, and I'm gonna ma- I made a distinction. I'm going to very briefly mention that distinction. Jesus asked him that question because Jesus wanted to probe his heart. What do you think? The man answered Jesus's test question in some fashion correctly. But I made a distinction, if you remember this message some years ago, and that was Jesus asked an essay question, but the man treated it like a multiple choice test. Meaning, the man gave the right facts, but he didn't know how those facts worked together. You know, I hated essay questions because when I was studying, I, I, could, I knew the facts, but please don't tell me how it all worked together. I could give you the name and the various things that went on during photosynthesis, but I'm not sure I completely understood exactly how it happened. But that's what an essay question forces you to do. It takes, what do you know? Now tell me how it all works together. What Jesus was looking for was this answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that you can love your neighbor as yourself. Now, do you see how that's different than what the man? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't necessarily a wrong answer, but Jesus was looking, going, tell me how that works. And so this idea of loving God is this, surrender like abraham believed in god and it was credited to him as righteousness but then as james 2 tells us he walked that out by good works he loved his neighbor as himself so do you see how that played out the very next if you were to read there in luke chapter 10 the very next story is a story of martha and mary martha had the love your neighbor down mary had the love the lord your god part down and jesus said she has found the better part. When, when you get this right, when you really love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when God is doing something in here, in your heart, and your response is, God, I need you, and I'm going to follow you, and we are not trying to understand and connect all of the dots, but we understand his love, and we understand this truth, and God's love is unfailing. It never changes. That is the truth then God does something amazing in us and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, this is, this is a diagram. I love diagrams. Some of you may not like diagrams. I'm sorry. But this kind of just gives us a perspective. This is, these are all the ingredients of what God is trying to do to produce this character of Christ in us. But how do I know that, or how does anyone know that you are a loving person? It's because of the loving things that you do. What's in the heart is expressed in what you do. So now, Galatians chapter 6. I want you to look there in verse 7. I'm going to read to you several verses. I'm going to kind of lay a, a little bit more of this. And when we're, going, we're going to then look at a very specific application that I've told you before. We need to exercise caution. We need to exercise balance. And, and I'm very concerned that we get this balance because if you don't, you will misapply it, and you will actually do great harm. And and can I just say, Christians misapply this regularly, and they go to the extremes. And, And may God help us that we get this principle and get the right heart behind it. So let me 
Look there with us. Look there with me, if you would. Verse 7, I'm reading through verse 10, Galatians 6. It says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now, before I go any further, we have control over what we sow, okay? We're going to discover that this is the sowing. Granted, God sows in our hearts, but this is us doing the sowing. We're doing the good deeds. That, that's the sowing. But we rarely have control over the reaping, okay? We can share the gospel, but I can't transform somebody's heart that's listening to the gospel I'm sharing with them. I can serve people, but I don't know how that's going to imp- I don't have power over how that will impact them except in how I sow. That's it. So he says, the one, verse 8, who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And he goes on and he says, the one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. So you see this concept of sowing and reaping. Verses 9 and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up therefore as we have opportunity let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers as we go through this drama of grace my purpose at least right now has been to focus on this idea of family brothers sisters mothers fathers in the faith But here he talks about the family of believers. For those of us who are the family of believers, our goal is to see Christ transforming us so that we are doing good, especially to the family of believers. That's your goal. That's your goal in this life. And I'm going to carry on this drama of grace as we see it unfolded in the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. But come January, I'm going to move into this idea of salt and light. Salt and light. Two metaphors Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he uses elsewhere, but you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And in view of that, then how do we live our lives so that this happens, so that our goal is to impact other people, so that we live with purpose on purpose? But this morning, I want us to simply see, we do good to all people, but our greatest priority in giving to the poor, in serving others, is the family of God. So do you see this? In view of this, then, I want to take the next 25 or so minutes, and I want us to see this idea of sowing and reaping. We are sowing, God does the reaping at a time he says don't give up for at the proper time you will reap a harvest but how are we going to sow and paul tells the galatians a very specific way for them to sow that then launches him into this principle of sowing and reaping look with me right now at verse one in verse one he says this brothers so he's talking to the family of god brothers If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself. 
or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should, should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Carry his own load, that's a different Greek word, than bear one another's burdens in verse 2. So he's talking about two different things there, two different loads. One has to do with personal responsibility. The burden in in verse 2, I'll get to in a moment. The thing that he talks about in this principle of sowing and reaping, this principle of sowing, specifically doing good, is when you see your brother or sister caught in a sin, what do you do? Can I be honest with you? For most of us, we tend to react. We might be hurt by their sin because we were the object of that offense, that hurt, that they're caught up, that offense, the sin that they're they're caught up in, and, and it hurt me especially husbands and wives, we hurt one another. And the scripture says that we're supposed to, those who are caught in sin, our goal is to restore them. So there is a way to do this that I'll get to in a moment that we need to first examine our heart because we can step into this, and I'm going to call it correction. We can step into correction in a way that is not healthy, and we actually do more harm. But on the other hand, we're afraid. Well, what if the person says, hey, don't judge me? Have you heard that expression? And, and they'll even quote you. Uh, have you examined you know, the, the plank in your eye before you try to remove the speck in mine? But Matthew chapter 7 that that's from is, trying to, is talking about hypocritical judging. It's not talking about judging across the board. As a matter of fact, did you know that in 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, Paul says this, do you not know that you are to judge one another? Whoa, did you, did you know that that's in the Bible too? And it has to do with the family of believers. But by that, he is simply speaking about what he's talking about here, bringing correction to someone who's caught in a sin. Not judging hypocritically, you know what, if, if I'm struggling with pride, I should probably be the last person to talk to someone who's caught in pride and bring correction. Examine your own heart first, he says. So we don't want to hypocritically judge, but he, here's what can happen. I'm going to bring a little balance. Here's what can happen. We can see someone caught in a sin of pride. We can think, well, goodness, I'm, I'm not completely humble. So... I don't want to speak to them. Well, you may not be the person to speak with them, but don't do it just simply because you're not perfect in this character quality. Every single one of us, to some degree or another, struggles with sin, but that doesn't disqualify us. We examine our heart first. Now, I'm going to walk you through how to do this, but first, let's look at this passage so we understand it and then I want to share with you, how do you do it? Because right now, husbands and wives, I can guarantee you, you can see your spouse caught in a sin, and you think you are on God's mission to confront them, 
Man, you put their backs up against the wall. You, you say whatever you got to say so that they stop doing what they're doing, and it's generally against you to hurt you, okay? That's not the way to do it. He t- he, first of all, when it says you're caught in a sin, that doesn't mean that the person was doing something in secret and you peered around the corner and you saw them. You caught them in a sin, okay? Paul says, don't do that. He actually uses the term being a busybody. Don't do that. You don't need to go around as someone's... I, I would tend to do this at times with my wife, and she would say, Mike, just I hear what you're saying, but please understand you're not my Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay? And, and we want to play the Holy Spirit. We want to be the one to, to catch people sometimes. But, you know, God was trying to do something in my heart. All right? That's not our attitude. Our attitude is vastly different. It's not to catch someone because the word here is best understood to be caught up in a sin, okay? It's the sin that catches us, not you. It's the sin that catches us. So here's a person. They're a follower of Jesus. They've been transformed by the Spirit of God, by this treasure in clay jars. We've been transformed. But we're still struggling. All of us do. We're still struggling with sin issues. How do we deal with that? Do we just allow, as we read God's word, to speak to us? That is so crucial. Do we just allow God to speak to us through circumstances around us? To maybe see bad examples and to think, well, I don't want to do that. And that's how God changes? Well, we can do that. But Paul says, that those of you who are spiritual should help this person who's caught up in this sin. Now, please understand, this isn't like one time stumbling into sin. This is someone who's caught in this sin. Your attitude should be, I want to help them. I'm not going to do it because I'm angry. I'm not going to do it because I'm hurt. I'm not going to do it to... Get it off my chest. I've heard all of these. No, we do it because we have a genuine heart for this person and we want to humbly help them. To be spiritual simply means you have the Spirit of God in you. You don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a mature leader. By spiritual, Paul simply means you've embraced the gospel. And in the context of Galatians, the spirit, not the law or legalism, is leading you. You're spiritual and therefore led by the spirit. I hope that would include all of us. So here's a person, a Christian. And they're caught in this sin. And those who have the spirit of God in them, and hopefully the heart of Christ, and in chapter 5, I don't, certainly wanna, wouldn't want to leave out the, the growing fruit of the Spirit. That's in chapter 5, by the way. Our goal is to help them. Our goal is to help carry their load. And this Greek word, it means to either pick up or it means to take that which has already been picked up and carry it. I want to use an analogy right now. Since I've already looked at Luke 10, I I want to look at that parable of the Good Samaritan. 
instance, that's how Jesus answered this one who said, well, who is my neighbor? You know, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Well, who is my neighbor? And by the way, Jesus does not answer the man's question, who is my neighbor? He answers the question, who am I to be a neighbor to? An aside. So here is the good, here's the Samaritan. The priest and the Levite don't help the man who's been robbed and beaten and is laying on the side of the road half dead. The Samaritan comes by, and, and, and I want you to see this as a picture of what Paul is talking about here. He comes to the man, and he doesn't look at him and say, wow, you look in pretty bad shape. Tell you what, I can help you, but if you could just climb on my donkey, I'll take you to an inn, and maybe they can help you there. He reached down, he bandages him, he, I'm sure he reached under him and with the man's arm across, lifts him up and helped him, as helpless as this man was, onto his donkey to help him to the inn where he was able to better care for him. That is this part of carrying someone's burden. It is the heart that wants to, we see them caught in a sin and we don't stand there judging them and you being legalistic or looking down upon them, that's arrogance. How are we supposed to do it here? With We're supposed to do it gently. Our goal, if you look at the passage, is to restore them. It's not for them to feel guilty. It's for them to be restored. Husbands and wives, listen to me now. If your spouse is caught in a sin, whatever that would be like, with gentleness, and that Greek word not only means gentle, mildly, calmly, without anger, but it also means humbly. It's kind of this word, we, we use the word meekness. The King James actually translates this word many times, meek or meekly or meekly, with that idea of gentleness, but also humility. That's your attitude. Your attitude isn't to just point the finger, it's to say, oh my goodness. My heart is broken for you. Even in marriages where that sin offends and hurts the spouse. This is the hardest. This is where we regularly overstep and we go to the extreme of accusation or we just avoid it entirely. Okay? And we help shoulder that sin issue with them. For a brother to a brother... Our heart is one of compassion, like the good Samaritan had to the Jew who'd been beaten and robbed. To help them stand, to help bring them to a place of healing. That's the heart that Paul is getting at here. There are times, certain sins, that if you're not careful, the one helping can stumble in that same sin. Be careful, he says, that you aren't tempted as well. That your heart is humble. It's not angry. Its goal, your goal, is to restore. Is to bring them to that place where they are helped out of that sin. Can I just say that as a pastor, I regularly have to step in and sit in situations. Generally, I will invite myself by asking them. And... If you're new to this church, I will not do this to you. But after some time in being in the church, and I know a man has a heart to grow in Christ, 
But as their pastor, I see an issue that they regularly struggle with. I pray for that person. And I'm praying, God, help them, help them grow in this area. If they tend to be, a man tends to be harsh with his wife. I've been there. I've done that. And I had a dad who did that too. And so God, for several decades, has been changing my heart. And to this day, he's still changing it. There's still times in which I'm harsh with my wife. And Paul says, guys, don't be harsh with your wife, right? Love her as Christ loves the church. So that's my goal. But let's say there's a man who's caught in this sin because his dad did the very same thing. He's a, he, he's a follower of Jesus, but he's caught in this harshness. Well, let's say as a pastor, I see this. And I don't just see it one or two times. I see it several times. I realize that this is an issue that he struggles with. And for those that I am closest to, they know that I love them. They know that I care for them. I will privately approach them. And I will say, hey, can I ask you something? I, I'm, I'm seeing something in your life, and I want you to know that I love you with all of my heart. But I want to be able to help you with something. Will you allow me to share that with you so that I can help you? And can I just say, before you say yes or no, what, what I'm seeing, I've wrestled with, and I know what it's like, and, and I've been defeated at times in this area, but I, I'm looking at you, and I want to help you. Will you let me help you? And I'll just ask him that. Will you let me help you? And nine times out of ten, the man will say, well, sure. I will then share with him some of those things that I've seen. And I will, again, preface my remarks with, I want you to know that I've struggled with this, too. And generally, I have struggled with just about any sin that guys can struggle with. And women can struggle with, because I'm human. But you know what? God has helped me in many of these areas to gain victory, and, and now I want to lead this man to that place of victory. That someone probably, and, and, and many times a pastor, helped me, leading me to victory. And so I have that heart. I wanna, I'm trying to be humble. I'm trying to be gentle with them. I, my goal is restoration. My goal is to help them. And so I ask myself, I don't just, can I, but can I just say this? If there is a serious situation and it is very, situ, very serious, I will generally not invite myself. I will step in and see, this is what Paul did earlier in this very same book. And if you look at chapter two, Peter has come to Antioch Paul and Barnabas are there ministering in the church. Antioch was a very large church in the early uh, times of the church. And it says that Judaizers came from James. And I'm sure they misrepresented James. But as they came, their goal was, we need to make these Gentiles good little Christian Jews. You need to follow the law of Moses. And very importantly, you must be circumcised. And much of Galatians is devoted to this. It's legalism. And it says, when they came, Peter stepped back from fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And he slipped right into this wrong mindset of what a Christian man is supposed to do. And it was offensive 
to the Gentile believers. And Paul, he tells us, I said to him in front of all of them. Because as a leader, he did something that was public. And scripture says, when an elder does this, you rebuke him publicly. Okay? So Paul confronts him pretty strongly. And he says, Peter, you're an apostle of all men. You should know this. And he brings correction. He doesn't yell at him, but he is. He even saw Barnabas following Peter's example. And he knows, I've got to do something here. Now, there's so much more to that issue. There's a whole book in tight, uh, devoted to it. And you can look at Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, in which they dealt with this issue very specifically. So here is Paul, and he does confront Peter. So I'm not saying that that is off the table. There's a place for that. But can I just tell you right now, that is rare. And I'm telling you this because many times when we see something, someone caught up in a sin and it's affecting me, I am hurt, I'm angry. Spouses, are you listening to me here? I, I'm gonna, I'm on God's mission. I'm going to bring correction to this. My husband, he needs to know what he's doing is wrong. And there's a confrontation, much like Paul, or even worse, gave to Peter. And, and if I could just speak to your hearts for a moment, take a step back. Because your emotions are now leading you rather than principles. And when, when this happens to me and I'm hurt or I'm angry, I have to step back and I just pray, okay, God, I know I need to do something about this, but I'm hurt and I cannot go with a hurt heart that's hurting. And so I want this transformation to impact what I do. I want to do it right. I don't want to be critical. I don't want to do it angry. I don't want to do it arrogantly, looking down upon them, or hypocritically. These are all ways that you don't want to do it. And so I need to examine my heart. And, and I may even ask, am I even the person to help this person, this other person? And again, there's so many scenarios and so many caveats in this. You just need to be led by the Spirit. Because sometimes maybe I am not the one who's supposed to talk to that person. I see them and they're struggling with this, but it's not me that's supposed to go to them. It might be someone who they, they already trust, they know that loves them, and, and so on. Because um, that kind of stuff is best taken care of in the context of a loving relationship. So those are ways in which we don't want to do it. We don't want to just get it off our chest. We don't want to vent. So how do we genuinely help them? We talked about being gentle and humble. I'm going to encourage you, in view of that, maybe it's wisest to go to the person inquiring. Maybe you saw several observations of a husband treating his wife harshly, but you missed the context. So you want to, I usually will go to that person 
and I will inquire. You know, did I, did I see this right? Am I missing it here? That's that's humble, okay? I may not be husbands and wives as you see issues in each other's lives that hurt you, go to them inquiring. Did you mean to say this because what you said hurt me? Don't go in with your shotguns fully loaded, ready to blast them. That's how we generally do it. Church, come on, we do. And, and it creates so much conflict in our home. So we pray, we deal with the hurt, then we go to them, and we go to them humbly, but we go to them inquiring, okay? That's just a humble heart. We also need to go with that idea of my goal is to help them and it is not to hurt them more. Because your goal, if it, is to, if, if it is to approach them humbly and help them, if it's clear that that's really not where your heart is, and people will see it, okay? If there's something wrong in your heart, and you're just, well, I'm just trying to help them, they'll know if you're coming across arrogantly or accusationally and, and you don't need to. They, they'll perceive what's really in your heart. So ask God to deal with them. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, says that if someone sins against you, go to them privately. Keep it between the two of you. Show that brother his fault so that you might win him. That verse is packed with truths, some of which are duplicated, but truths that align with this. So if someone does offend you, the first thing that you do isn't hop on the prayer chain and say, you know, so-and-so did this and we need to pray for them, okay? Can I just lend a word of caution? Um, us men can sometimes be really boneheaded. Ladies, I'm sure you already know that. But we can be really boneheaded sometimes. Sometimes we just don't get it. And the way we talk or act, it's just not loving and tender. And, you know, I grew up with four brothers and a sister who was a tomboy that if I, if I wasn't careful, she could take it to me, all right? And so I just grew up with that, you know, sports and it was being, it was competition and it was aggressive. And, wow, you don't want to come across that way to your wives, right, guys? And, and so God had to do something here. But he, here's a truth that sometimes us guys will, uh, or, or ladies, when, when we do something boneheaded, you're hurt. And when you come to the meeting, and I'm just going to be honest right now, there's a prayer request. And it's for my husband. And I need you to pray for my husband. Because he this, that, and the other, and, and I usually, if I'm there, I'll usually, well, okay, I see where they're going. They're really hurt. The only problem is, many times, their husbands can now never come to Powerline because everybody knows his sin issues, okay? Ladies, just be careful about that. There's a way to talk about your unsaved husband or your husband who's maybe not there that night. There's a way to talk about him publicly that is gracious. Okay? And we don't name names. And don't say, well, the person I'm married to, okay, that doesn't work. But you know what, guys? So 
ladies, just be careful. Don't, don't mask it. You know, I'm going I'm to let people know, but I'm gonna, it's a prayer request, right? We, we don't do that. You may need, ladies, you may need to go to my wife or to another godly woman in the church so that they can help you with this issue. And maybe for me to sit down with the husband. But can I just assure you this? I'm running out of time. I need to be quick. I will generally sit down with you and with with both husband and wife. Because I've just seen too many times in which there's another side to the story. So we want to keep it between the two of you. You want to keep it between the two if you've been offended. Keep it between the two of you. Someone sinned against you, go to them privately and just keep it between the two of you. Many times when people bring a, a gentle word of correct, correction, hey, I, I went to them privately. Now I can tell all of my friends. No, you can't. I've even heard one person tell me, and I, and I tried to be gracious as I helped this person see what they were wrestling with in the area of gossip, and they, they defended themselves. And they said, I think friends can share everything with their friends. And I had to challenge them. I said, I'm sorry, but when the Bible says don't gossip, are you trying to tell me that you're just not supposed to gossip with your enemies? Who else do you gossip with? You gossip with your friends. You don't gossip with your enemies. Please see this because gossip hurts relationships, destroys them. Keep it between the two of you. And then it says, show them their fault. And I've had to do this because, and and, and I'm just going to let you know right now, as your pastor, I will probably offend you at some point in your life. I can almost promise you that. It's not a prophecy, but I can almost promise you that because I'm a fallen man trying to see Christ formed in me to do good, but and I blow it. I blow it with my wife. I blow it with my kids. I've blown it with some of you, and I want you to feel the freedom to come and talk with me if I've hurt you, all right? But could you do me a favor? Don't just bring an accusation. Pastor Mike, you're just arrogant. Wow, okay. That would not be the first time I've been told that, by the way. Can you help me, and can you give me some examples? No, no, I'm just going to leave it at that. My problem is that's not showing them. Because the Greek word actually means give examples or give evidence to help them understand or persuade them. So when we talk with them, we don't give a litany of, of examples to hurt them because that's not our heart. But we do want them to see. Do, do you understand? And so I'm going to ask you, can you please give me some examples? Because if I am, man, I want to repent. I want to apologize to you. I want to get this done out of my life because I'm not above that. Okay? And so we, we want to show them. But see, our goal is to win them. It's not to make them our enemies. It's not to push them away. It's not to get something off our chest. It's I want to help you. And if you can just have that heart, your goal is to help him. That's going to cover so much ground. Husbands and wives, is it really your goal to help your spouse right now? You're bringing a word of correction. Is it really to help them? That must be our goal. Gently, lovingly bringing correction, speaking truth, 
in love, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. So this is our goal, to win our brother, to bring unity. There's going to come a day, church, in which we will stand before God. And he's going to want to know, Mike, Hillel, Juliana, how did you live out this Christian life? How did you live out your faith? James James says, you know, you you can show me your faith by your words, but I want to see it by your action. I'm paraphrasing. I want to see it by your action. That's what I want to do. I I want this faith, this transformation, I want it to be seen by my actions. One of the best ways you can help people shoulder problems in their lives, financial problems, um, personal conflict that they have. You can help shoulder just as, as all kinds of needs and, and struggles, doubts that they're going through. Our heart is to help shoulder them. Paul here just hones in because he realizes that conflict, can be so strong in God's family. And he walks them through how to do it in a way that is doing good, in a way that truly helps. Church, I'm gonna probably guarantee you that you're gonna come across someone this week that will say something or do something that's not right. And some of that is gonna hurt you. And so my question to you is, what are you gonna do about that? Love covers a multitude of sins, but there is a time in which we step in. And like the Good Samaritan, their their heart anyway, we help shoulder that load with them. We help them carry it. Not arrogantly, as you see in verses 3, 4, and 5, but humbly, lovingly. This is what's going to produce this hallmark of love in the body of Christ. Generally, though, we tend to handle conflict rather poorly. We tend to handle sin issues in other people's lives rather poorly. And I'm going to encourage you, there's a way to do it in which by you helping them, they will begin looking to you as a close friend. If you do it right, and they will look to you and say, well, this person definitely has my best interests at heart. They really loved me. And some of you have testimonies, issues, sin issues in your life. And someone came along and helped you through it. That happened to me. I was a teenager. I'd been walking with the Lord a few years. And I became really arrogant. I didn't realize it at all. It was because there were so many insecurities. And I'm not going to get into all of that and even what I mean by insecurities. But I became arrogant. And my closest friend and my youth pastor pulled me aside so gently, so graciously. And they came under my arm and helped lift me up as they began to speak to my heart. And they began to open up, give me examples of my arrogance. And if they had not done that, God would have had to use somebody else, but probably with an even stronger word to me. God loves you so much. He wants to use you to help people. And if you are struggling in a sin issue, be humble. 
And, and when someone comes to you, be open and receptive. Respond. Repent if you need to. But let the Spirit of God speak through them to your heart. Okay? This then is going to produce such richness in the body of Christ. As we're going through this drama of grace and we respond humbly, God is going to do amazing things if you'll let him in your heart. Amen. Can you stand with me? Can I just encourage you that there is so much more that we could even talk about on this issue that if, if there's confusion on your part, if you want to come talk to me, I would love to be able to do that, to bring some clarification. All right. But Father, we're going to, we just come before you right now. Some of us, Lord, in all honesty, we have been hurt deeply in the past because another brother or sister just did not follow Paul's advice here in Galatians 6. And I'm asking you, Lord, that, that you would heal that wound that's there. And I ask you, Father, that we would embrace your love and your forgiveness. If we've held any grudges, we would let those go. Father, would you empower us as your people with that attitude that Christ had? shoulder of a people's weight, whatever that boat looks like, that we would sow well. And I ask you, Father, that in the end there would be a tremendous harvest of righteousness. Lord, I pray for each of us, and because this is an issue, God, in which we wrestle with like every week, and we need your spirit to lead us and not our flesh. So I just pray for every single individual. Lead them by your love. Lead them in humility and gentleness. And give us that heart that bears one another. Lift them up. Give us that attitude of Christ as a servant, humble, giving. And I just ask you, Lord, if there are issues right now, this morning, between some other person in the body of Christ and you have spoken to their hearts would we leave them seeking in love for where they go Father I just thank you right now let these truths sink into our hearts that we would walk them out so effectively we would reflect the very character 